I want to do today, and in fact, uh, what I feel privileged to be able to do is to start a new series here in Auckland. Uh, I, I hope it's not just me. I, it is a series. Otherwise, it's a one-week series. I love one-week series. They are fantastic. Uh, but, but I do have, I'm going to throw it, it's going to be longer than a one-week series, called The Revivalists. And, and the idea behind this, this series that, is that across the series, we'd look at a bunch of different people throughout history that God has used to change the world. And what I love about this idea is as we look at these people, what we quickly come to realize is that these are simply everyday people. That these people like you and me, I'm assuming like you, definitely like me, they make mistakes. Like you and like me, they have good days and bad days, but that God uses them to bring change, that God uses them to transform their communities, that God uses them to bring life and hope. And so I, I think, come on church, this 2023, let's not warm up into the year. Let's start from a position of faith declaring what if God used us? Not if what God used them, not if what God used that person on the stage or, or that person sitting closer to the front or, or that person serving over there. What if God used you to change your world? What if God used you to bring life and hope to, to your friends and family who, who desperately need it? And so I pray that, that this series and today in particular is helpful for you. If, you. if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm gonna read uh, verses 41 to 45 uh, and then we're gonna get into it. I think as a church, we're familiar with this passage. Uh, it's not gonna be new to you, but I pray that, that we unpack something new from it today. It says this, and Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is a sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Why don't you bow your heads with me and I, let's pray this morning. God, we thank you today as we gather together as we come together as your people on this, the, the first Sunday gathering together in person of 2023. God, I pray that, that as we turn towards you, as we create space for you, that you would speak to us. God, I pray that today it wouldn't be my ideas, it, it wouldn't be me convincing us of anything, but that today you would speak to us, that you would meet us where we are at, that, that you would encourage us, that, that you would spur us forward into what you have for us. God, I pray that today we would leave different having encountered your truth, your love, and your grace. God, would you be at work? In Jesus' name, amen. So the series is called Revivalists, right? And so it would be a little bit weird if on the first of the Revivalist series, I just said, hey, God uses people to change the world and, and then didn't talk any more about that. That would not be such a great kind of preaching in theme. So I wanna uh, draw your attention this morning to, to someone that I think uh, unequivocally can be considered a revivalist. It's this man, D.L. Moody. Moody is, is an incredible man. Moody was born one of uh, nine children to a single mother who, who really struggled to keep food on the table. He has no education beyond the fifth grade level and he made his living as a shoe salesman. 
Moody came to, to faith in Christ at the age of 17 and, and kind of fairly rapidly from this encounter with Jesus, he, he felt a, a compelling, he felt an unction that he needed to share this faith that he had. And so he started preaching, he started sharing the gospel, whatever opportunity that he got. And, and one thing led to another and, and Moody went on to travel the world preaching, drawing crowds of up to 30,000 people to hear him preach. Many consider him to be the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. And so today, as we look at this idea of revivalists, of people that, that have partnered with God to bring change, to bring transformation to their communities, I, I wanna ask, is there anything that we can learn from Moody? And, and I think, in fact, the truth is there are a lot of things that we can learn from Moody. There's a lot of things that, that, that Moody did. There's a lot of ways in which Moody lived. There's a lot of things when we talk about Moody, but, but I wanna focus on one thing in particular. And probably for me, when I, when I hear about Moody's life, when I read about the things that he did, it's the thing that inspires me the most and challenges me the most. And that's Moody's commitment to prayer. To hear it from, from Moody himself, Moody says this, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Tyler Staden in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, he, he tells the story of D.L. Moody, and, and in particular, he tells the story of Moody carrying a list of 100 names. In Moody's pocket, he would carry a list of, of 100 people that he knew who did not have faith in Jesus. And, and Moody's commitment was every day to pray through that, that list of 100 names, to pray for those people that God would reveal himself to them, that he would get to be a part of it, that he would do what he could, but that God would do everything that he couldn't, that God would draw them close, that they would know that God is for them, that God loves them, that they are, are cherished, that God, God is after them. And, and as each person on that list, as someone responded to, to God, as someone came to faith, he would simply cross a name off that list and he would keep on praying. And, and the story goes that when Moody died, 96 of those 100 names had come to faith in Christ, which is incredible, yeah? Like if I think about the type of impact that I wanna have in my life, that's not, man, if I could get like, it's less than 96, I would be feeling pretty impressed with myself, if I'm being honest. I'd be like, this is an incredible thing, look at what has happened. 96 is amazing. But, but what I love is it gets even better than that. The story goes that at Moody's funeral, at his memorial service, each of the four friends who had not responded to Jesus were in attendance. And at Moody's funeral, the, the gospel was, was shared and each was so moved independently that every single one of those four remaining friends of Moody came to a knowing faith in Jesus at his funeral. See, when I think about that, that moves me. The idea of carrying around a, a list of 100 names, but not just carrying it, praying. Of, of, of interceding, of, of asking God, of, of being a person of prayer on behalf, not just of what I need in my life, but on behalf of those in my life. And, and it makes me start to wonder, what if God is wanting to do something in our lives? What, what if God is wanting to do something incredible in, in Auckland? What if he's wanting to bring transformation and, and restoration? What if he's wanting to pour out his love and power in a new way? And what if to do so, in doing so, he is looking to partner with the people who pray? Yeah, good. See, if you're anything like me, when you hear a story like D.L. Moody's list of 100, you, you, get, you get a little bit inspired, right? 
Maybe you even write your own list. Maybe not a hundred. That's you know that's maybe something to to work towards. Maybe it is a hundred. I don't want to quash your faith if, if that's what you got. Go for a hundred. That's awesome. Maybe if you're like me, it's more like five or ten. Maybe just one person. And so you write a list. And you're like, God, I want I want to see you move in this person's life. I want them to come to know that you love them the way that I know that you love me. And so you start to pray for this person and and you carry the list around. But but there comes a day when when your pants go in the wash, which is a good thing. I'm not anti-washing pants, right? I just want to be clear on that matter. But you forget to take the list out of your pocket. And you don't realize you forgot to take the list out of your pocket until you get the pants back out of the wash and you have that lovely moment where there's just those little shreds of paper deposited on everything. Does anyone know that experience? Yeah? It's a beautiful, beautiful moment, right? It's funny the things that make us just struggle with the futility of existence, like getting paper all over your clothes. You pick off every bit and that's a hard life, right? And so the list has been destroyed. And you could write another list, but, but you just kind of, there's not a pen nearby and there's no paper and you just kind of don't get to it and you mean to do it by the afternoon, but you don't quite get to do it by the afternoon. And, and then there's another day passed, another day passed, and then a week passed. And, and then kind of like six months later, you think, hey, I used to carry around a list. What, what happened? No one else, just me? I'm the only person who forgets in that sort of way. That's all right. But there's that moment and, and it's forgotten or... The other side is, is you have that list and you're faithful with that list and you pray and you pray and you pray, but, but nothing seems to happen. Nothing seems to change. And maybe even as I shared that story, someone comes to mind for you that you've been praying for for a long time. You're saying, Jonah, I've got my list and I've been praying, but unlike Moody, I haven't been able to cross anyone off it and, and I wanna see God move, but God hasn't been moving in the way that I would hope and what do I do in the in-between? And yet we read in James 5 that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. There's a tension there, isn't there? There's a tension, and what do we do? What do we do when we want to see the transforming power of prayer? What do we do when we want to see revival like Moody, but, but we struggle to pray? We struggle either to remember to pray, or we struggle in prayer not seeing what we are praying for come to fruition. There's a tension in that. The prayer of a, of a righteous person is powerful and effective, and yet I am praying and I'm not seeing what I wanna see happen. Does that mean I'm not a righteous person? Right? Like, do I need to behave my way into God doing what, what I hope to see happen? Why is it not working the way that, that I'm hoping it would? Well, James seems to know the tension that we live in. He continues, Elijah was a human being. Even as, as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. For some of you, right, for your summer holidays, that's a word from God, pray it would not rain. <laughs> Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. See, James encourages us that prayer can be powerful and effective. Just look at Elijah. He was a man just like you and I. He was a human being and God used his prayers. He wasn't supernatural. He wasn't special. He was a faithful person just like Moody. There's no A-grade Christians and B-grade Christians. We all follow the same God. God is the one who is exceedingly and abundantly able to do beyond what we could ask, think, or imagine. We are not. We are not the secret source in this equation, and so we do not earn God moving on our behalf. God moves, and so I wanna encourage us today, prayer can be powerful and effective. Just look at Moody, he was also a man, but God, God used his prayers. So, that would suggest there is a type of prayer. There is a type of prayer that changes nations. There is a type of prayer that brings restoration and transformation. There is a type of prayer that brings about new life, that brings revival. There is a type of prayer that James encourages us, we can pray too. 
And so today, simply what I'd like to do is to look at this type of prayer in the story of Elijah. We're going to come back, and and as we read, as uh, we started, we're going to look at that story of 1 Kings 18. But before we do, for context, there's a moment in time that this story occurs in, yeah? It's always important to remember when we're reading the Bible, it's not just this moment on the page, but that it exists in in a wider context. And this moment in time is that Israel has forgotten God. They tend to do that. We could judge them, except for the fact that I don't know about you, but I find that I'm very similar to Israel in some of the ways that I live my life, right? Sometimes I remember God, sometimes I forget God, and I'm employed to remember God, so I don't know how the rest of you do it. But there can be these, these moments in life, and, and the Old Testament pattern is, is that Israel looks to Yahweh, they look to God out of desperation. They're in a hard moment, and so they look to God, they remember God, and He responds, But when their prayers are answered, their desperation gets replaced by comfort, and then they forget the God that led them out of the desperation in the first place, trusting in something that they can control instead. I see this pattern in my my own life, and and in Elijah's time, Israel Israel places its trust in in their king, in the king Ahab and his wife Jezebel, rather than in, in their God Yahweh. And Ahab and Jezebel, they lead Israel away from God and into idol worship of a false god called Baal. And in a moment of extraordinary courage, Elijah confronts this worship. He approaches King Ahab, he issues a challenge, and this is a story that might be familiar to you. He he says to Ahab, hey, I'm one prophet of Yahweh and you've got 450 prophets of Baal. So let's set up a test. Let's set up a a sacrifice with two altars. Let's put a bull on on each altar, one altar to Yahweh, one altar to Baal, and and let's not set the sacrifice on fire. Let's, Let's not give the sacrifice, but instead, here's what we'll do. Let's pray, and whoever's God is the one true God will send fire that will miraculously consume the sacrifice. Whoever's God does that, that is the one true God. Me, this one prophet to Yahweh, and there are 450 prophets to Baal. Let's do that. Let's have a bit of a competition, and let's see, should Israel be worshiping Baal, or should they turn back to Yahweh? And and now, this kind of, it seems like a bit of a a random moment, but it's not quite as random as it it sounds. See, in, in ancient Mesopotamia, where this happens, Baal was considered the god of the skies, And he was often portrayed as as having lightning in his hand. And the way that he was portrayed was was as a bull. So he was kind of a a human bull figure who held lightning. And so Elijah, in what he's suggesting to do, he's kind of saying, like, hey, we'll give Baal every home court advantage. Like, you are the god of bulls? All right, we'll make it a bull that you can set on fire. Like, in case you couldn't do a frog because you don't like frogs, we'll give you a bull just to make it easy. And, and how are you going to set on fire? Well, you're the god of lightning, so surely, Baal, if you're the one true god, you can use your thing, which is lightning, to set on fire your thing, which is a, a bull. And so he suggests this, and, and Ahab is intrigued, and so he says, yeah, sure, let's, let's do it. And so the sacrifices are set up, and word spreads, and this massive crowd gathers, and the 450 prophets of Baal go first, and, and they pray, and, and nothing happens, and, and, and they grow a little bit more intense in their prayer from morning till midday. They shout, and they dance around the altar, and, and nothing happens, and it continues into the evening, and, and they, they get so kind of worked up, they start even cutting themselves and mutilating their own bodies to try and get their God's attention, and nothing happens. And so they retire. They're like, all right, we had a go. You have a go. And so it's Elijah's turn. And 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 30 tells us this. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. 
they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. So so before praying to to God, before doing anything else, Elijah walks over to the old altar of Yahweh, the the one that was torn down when they stopped worshiping God and started worshiping Baal, and he rebuilds the foundation of what Israel uses to worship. And, And then he says to them, fill four large jugs with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Now on the surface, this seems just like a flex, right? Like this seems like Elijah's being like, hey, this is, you know, like you couldn't even light a a dry offering on fire. I'm gonna make this hard. Like I'm gonna show you how much better my God is than your God. Let's get this, let's get the sacrifice wet. Let's get it drenched so that I'm making it as hard as possible for God to move. That's what it seems like. Yeah, we agree? It's interesting because sure, it is harder to light something that's wet on fire. I agree. I'm not, I'm not debating that. But, but it's interesting, something else is going on here as well, but something that we sometimes miss is, is he's not, Elijah is not a magician preparing to do a magic trick, right? Like he's not like Houdini, like is this your card? Rip up your card, eat your card, here is your card. Right? It's not quite what he's doing. Elijah is not a magician preparing to do a magic trick. Elijah is a worshiper preparing to pray. And, and the context here is Israel is in the middle of a three-year drought, Right, it hasn't rained in Israel for a thousand days. The country is in the middle of disaster. They're unable to grow crops. People are starving. They need rain. And what is the most valuable commodity? What is the most valuable thing in the middle of a drought? Water. You guys are smart, right? You switched on. You started 2023 with your brains on. That's good. And so Elijah, in the middle of this drought, he doesn't just make the magic trick harder. He takes the most valuable thing that he has and he pours it out in front of God. He takes the most valuable thing. This is the thing where Elijah is going all in, right? Already he is, he is annoying the establishment. He's getting the, the prophets of Baal offside. Jezebel is not happy with what he's doing. But now he's probably taking his own personal supply and even more. And then he's getting people involved. He's like, hey, let's pour water on the altar. Not just a little bit of water, but so much water that the, the trough around the altar fills up. Let's fill this altar as much as we can with the thing that is most precious to us. See, the the echo of of David's words is all over the scene. I will not bring to my God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Elijah is going all in on his worship. And then after this moment, finally he prays. We read in 1 Kings 18, 37 to 39, he says, answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So Elijah rebuilds the altar, pours out his most precious resource on it, and God shows up. There is fire in the church. It's this amazing moment, this holy moment, this moment that we yearn for. God, would your fire fall in our church? God, would you move in that sort of way? It's an incredible moment, isn't it? And so often what we do when we get to this moment is we close the Bible. Story done, chapter finished. Right, this is the conclusion. There's a great little bit, there's a great story. God came, fire came in the church, amazing. But I wanna suggest that this is not actually the end of the story. This is the very beginning. 
If this is a movie, this isn't the roll credits, this isn't end scene, this is act one. This is the very beginning of the story of God turning the hearts of Israel back to him. It doesn't end with fire, it starts with fire. If this was a movie, it would be act one, fire in the church. And I think often when it comes to prayer, when it comes to revival, we want fire. We want God to move in power. We want to see the supernatural. And that is great. Let's see that. Let's go after that. But let's understand that that is the start. That is the place that we begin. Again, Tyler Stanton put it this way. He said, God doesn't dream of the church on fire. God dreams of the city reborn. It can be so tempting for us as a people of faith to, to pursue in our faith something that is simply comfortable and convenient, entertaining even for us. How's church going? Oh, well, worship on Sunday was amazing and I just felt God really close and so I guess that church is going great if I personally had a great experience. And again, nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with feeling God in the house. We pray that that happens every time that we gather together. But I wanna suggest that church, our faith, our relationship with Jesus is much more than a product to be consumed. And so here in this moment, it's not just the fire in the church, but it's something bigger that God is doing. And this only makes sense if we know the ending of the story, which you do, because I started at the end, right? See, the end of the story is a city reborn. The end of the story, if you're extra sharp, you might know where this is going, is, is as we read in 1 King, Kings chapter 18, verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go and eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. See, the story begins with fire, but, but where this is moving, now we're aware, is that the nation is in the middle of a horrible drought. Ahab is, is desperate. He's, he's just seen fire fall from heaven. So he's like, maybe I'll give this Elijah guy a time of day, right? It seems that his God maybe is doing some stuff. So he takes Elijah at his word and, and he leaves. Elijah says to him, go and leave. God is going to break this drought. God is going to, to reveal himself, not just to the people in attendance in this moment, but to this nation again in a fresh and a new way. And Ahab's like, I guess maybe let's see what happens. And so Ahab leaves and Elijah climbs Mount Carmel and he begins to pray for, for rain. And three years into a drought, there is a massive downpour. Three years into a drought, celebration breaks out in the streets. Three years into a drought, new life springs up in a dead place. Three years into a drought, revival starts. See, this moment when the rain falls on a parched and dry nation, this is the climactic moment of Elijah's story. Not when fire falls and impresses a few, but when rain comes and transforms an entire nation, not just a church on fire, but that fire going out from the church and making a difference in its city, in a city being transformed. It starts with fire in the church, but it ends with revival in the city. And so if act one is fire in the church and act three is revival in the city, what is the bridge between? How do we go from, from having an incredible moment of worship on Sunday to seeing the gospel outworked in our day-to-day -day lives to seeing our list of 100 like D.L. Moody come to a knowing faith in Jesus if all we hope is that maybe someone will take a wrong turn, stumble in those doors and hear that Jesus loves them, how much of our world is gonna be changed? See, I wanna suggest that the bridge between Act 1 and Act 3 is Act 2, a mountain of prayer. See, Elijah says to the king, prepare for rain, and then what does he do? He climbs to the top of Mount Carmel, he bends down to the ground, and he puts his face between his knees. I don't know how often you pray, but I've never prayed like that. 
Just think about that. Let me describe it to you again and don't just kind of gloss over it as like, yeah, Bible's saying stuff. But imagine what this looks like. Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. I debated demonstrating this for you and I decided against it for my own personal dignity, right? There are just certain lines that shall not be crossed. Frequently in the Bible, when, when we encounter people praying, they're, they're praying maybe lying on the ground or, or they're praying with their hands raised or they're, they're praying kneeling, but we never see someone kind of crouched on the ground with their head between their knees in this odd sort of position. But Elijah bends down to the ground and puts his face between his, his knees. Now, just a tip for reading the Bible, whenever something kind of comes across in detail in an odd way, it's because it's chosen to be accentuated. Right, the Bible is not written like, like a story, like a narrative, like someone taking a long time to explain everything. It's kind of more written as, as someone just taking notes as they're running along behind as things are happening because it's all really happening and they're just trying to write it down. There's more of how the Bible happened and then when they're passing on, they don't you know, like have a whole bunch of room to pass on what's happening so they're keeping short accounts and so when something is detailed, it's because it's, it's important. He bent to the ground and put his face between his knees. See, scholars would suggest that to pray for the city, Elijah climbs to the top of the mountain and he gets himself into the position of a woman in labor. If you're trying to imagine what it looked like, now you got it, right? And they're like, I didn't want to realize it that closely, Jono, thank you. I know, right? Not only do scholars say like a woman in labor, but a woman in labor preparing to push. I don't know how many men have uh, been through labor. If you have, you don't get to pat yourself on the back, right? I'm sorry, that's, uh, but for the ladies in the room, we cannot understand, but we can empathize in the tiniest little bit. It just having been witness to the birth of two children, all I can say is it doesn't look especially comfortable. And Elijah takes this position and he begins to pray for the city. It's, it's graphic, it's odd, but it's this event and it's this prayer that James refers to as powerful and effective. Now, now does that mean when we're praying for our friends and family that we need to go home, lie on the ground, raise our knees, put our head between our knees and start praying? Like is that the, that is the required prayer position to see revival break out? No. <laughs> Just in case. He's like, ah, John said I had to. We're praying like this from now on. Sam comes back. He's like, what's happened? At a prayer meeting, right? Well, global prayer. Everyone, assume the position. No. It was weird. We've become a cult. There's something going on here. It's not the position, but it's the heart attitude that, that Elijah steps into that throughout church history has been known as, as contending prayer been known as to travail in prayer. It's been known as long-suffering prayer, righteous prayer, fervent prayer. This is, this is what we call it. It's this prayer that brings life, this prayer that brings revival. It's the type of prayer that Moody refers to when he says every great move of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. See, what if God doesn't dream of the church on fire or God doesn't dream of just a church on fire, but that God dreams of a city reborn? And what if between the two is a mountain of prayer? Not just incidental prayer, not just off-handed prayer, but persistent, travailing, long-suffering, intentional, fervent prayer. You know, I've, I never met my grandfather. My uh, mum's my dad passed away when, when she was 15, and, and so I never got the chance to meet him, but, but he was a minister. And, and I'm, I'm privileged in, in my life to come from uh, a line of, of Christians in, in both my families. In fact, I'm a third generation pastor on my mum's side. And, 
And, and, and as I go about my life, I'm all too often aware that I live in the result, in the shadow, in the aftermath of the prayers of those who've gone before me. That when I walk into an environment, that, that as I walk about my daily life, that, that I'm walking in the prayers that they have prayed. That things haven't just happened, but, but that they have been praying for some of the things that I've seen come to pass in my life for a long time. That my grandfather died before even knowing my name. And I don't say that for, for you if you're here today and maybe you're a first generation Christian to think, like, oh man, that's, that would be lovely to have, but, but I don't have that for me. I say that to suggest who could walk in our prayers? Who could walk in the shadow? Who could walk in, in the effect? Who could walk in the, the aftermath of, of our prayers? What mountain of prayer could we be climbing? What vision could we get for revival in our time that those that come after us, that those who are close to us but far from God would, would walk in the shadow of the prayers that we have prayed that life would spring forth? Because it's very nature, this type of prayer, is, it's contending, it's, it's not easy. In fact, often it is slow and unglamorous. Like I said, I'm done, but let's look back at, at Elijah's story. He's on the mountain and he is laboring in prayer. And he tells the servant, go and look towards the sea. And the servant looks and he sees nothing. In fact, seven times Elijah sends him back until the seventh time the servant says, a cloud as small as a man's fist is rising from the sea. See, notice this, Elijah prayed for fire once. He prayed for rain seven times. Sometimes prayer is slow. Sometimes it's that friend that, that you really get a sense that, that God is pursuing, that God is after. And you have that one conversation where they seemed really open. It was, it was really encouraging. You got excited and you started praying and nothing. And so you kept on praying and nothing and you're praying and, and nothing. And you started praying and nothing. And then you kept on praying and nothing. And then you prayed and nothing. And then you prayed and something. Just a small conversation just a slight more openness, just an opportunity to share a little bit of your story, something small, but it's something. See, I think plenty of people have been inspired by Moody's list of 100. I think far fewer people are still inspired, are still praying, I should say, when the inspiration is worn off. Inspiration will only last so far. We can only stay inspired for so long, but will our obedience, will our faithfulness persist once inspiration doesn't? Could it be that if we want the type of legacy that Moody has, we need to be willing to persistently partner with God? I'm not saying that God's up there waiting for us to store up enough prayer credits to move or anything like that, but I, but I am saying that prayer is often slow. It's often slow and it's not always glamorous or, or spectacular. Calling down fire from heaven, that, that one Elijah public spectacle. Everyone saw that, everyone was impressed. Everyone was like, that is incredible. But praying for the city was something that he did on his own out of sight. He climbed the mountain where no one could see him. Praying for fire, I'm sure he looked bold and amazing. He said it and it came. Up on the mountain, he assumes a weird position. He gets uncomfortable. And he prays longer than I'm sure that he wanted to, but it's in this unseen laboring, it's in this persistent prayer on the mountain, not the public spectacle that we are told to imitate Elijah's life. There's this one moment in the Gospels where the disciples seem really excited about reenacting this fire. In Luke 9, Jesus isn't welcomed in a village and, and the disciples, James and John, see this and they're like, Jesus, should we, should we pray down fire on them? I'm sure they have Elijah in mind. Should we bring God's judgment on them? And 
James and John, they wanted Elijah's spectacle, but Jesus says no. Jesus isn't after spectacle, He's after Elijah's prayer. He's after the sort of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where He asks His disciples to pray with Him and they fall asleep. Again, this isn't to guilt us into, oh man, we should stay awake and, and pray all night, but it's to say sometimes there will be moments to pray in which we feel like sleeping. Sometimes even we will mean to pray. God will call us to pray and we will fall asleep in the middle of the prayer. But even when we fail, even when we fall short, even when we make mistakes, we can get back up and we can resume praying. It's not about being perfect, it's about being persistent. See, I believe we don't just wanna see God move in a moment. We wanna see God move in generations. We wanna see God move in cultures. We wanna see God move in cities. We wanna see God move in nations. And that starts with a, with a church on fire. Can I say, and I'm done, but I think that this church is on fire, that there is fire in this church. I wanna say, looking from the outside, what we have here is a beautiful thing. The altar has been rebuilt. There is a high value on worship. God is being esteemed in a way that not only impacts here, but that is spilling out, that is igniting sparks around this nation and around the nations of the world. There is a high value for worship in this house. There is fire in this house. Don't miss it because you see it every day. Choose to encounter God in a fresh and a new way to say, God, you are here and you are moving. God, something is happening and I wanna be a part of it. And as you encounter that fire, can I encourage you that as the church catches fire, as the altar is rebuilt, as there is a passion for worship, we can choose to try and contain that or it can break out. And often the link between the two is, is prayer. To land this practically in, in two weeks' time on the 25th of January, you have open heaven. On a Wednesday night, the churches in Auckland are coming together to pray together, to gather together to pray. If you're looking for an action, can I just encourage you, registrations open like a week ago, register today. Make the decision now to put yourself in a place of prayer with others, to ask God's fire to fall in a fresh and in a new way. But go there with the intent, I am starting praying. You can start praying earlier, but I'm starting praying then, but I'm not stopping. Put yourself in an e-group. In February, as we start e-groups back up, get in an e-group and share what you are praying for. Share what you were expecting to see. Share what you were trusting God to do. What would it look like for you to have a list like D.L. Moody? Maybe it's just one person to pray for that person, to carry their name on a piece of paper, to set a daily reminder on your phone, whatever works for you, to pray for them and to pray specifically enough that you'll know if God answers your prayer. To pray in a way that, that invites you to participate that you would pray that God would move and then that you would pray that you could be His hands and feet. Pray, and as you pray, pray regularly enough that endurance and labor are required. Along the way, you might need to ask God for a renewed faith that He's actually listening. You might need to ask God for a renewed compassion for the individual that you're praying for. But as you pray, would you ask for faith, hope, and love to be your motivation as you go?